Would you take your Bibles this morning and let's turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. We have been studying here for some weeks now. We want to continue in our study of Genesis this morning. Last Sunday morning, we took another step in this study. And if you were with us last time, you know that we worked our way through a sermon that was a survey of sorts through the end of chapter 8 and the first half of chapter 9. That's where we spent our time last week. And as we worked our way through the survey, we noted uh, four key parts to the passage. Uh, We saw four ideas. We saw, first of all, a striking contrast. And secondly, we saw a repeated command. Thirdly, we saw a sobering corrective. And finally, we saw a reminder of the covenant. All of that is found in the end of chapter 8 through the, through the middle of chapter 9. And we surveyed all four of these big ideas. And in that sermon, we really reminded ourselves of the fact that in the flood, there was something far, far bigger going on than just that which affected Noah and his family directly. In fact, I quoted from a commentator last week, Marcus Dodds. I want to read what I wrote, read last week. He, he wrote this about the flood. I thought it was very helpful. He said, this event, referring to the flood, then gives us some measure by which we can know how much God will do to maintain holiness upon earth. In this catastrophe, everyone who strives after godliness may find encouragement. Seeing in it the divine earnestness of God for good and against evil. There's only one other event in history that so conspicuously shows that holiness among men is the object for which God will sacrifice everything else. And as we talked last time, it's clear that Dodds was pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ as the only other demonstration of the divine earnestness of God that compares to the gravity of the catastrophe of the flood. We noted several important things in this text. We said following the outpouring of God's wrath on the flood, God poured out His grace on Noah and his family. We said that following the flood, God repeated the dominion mandate to Noah and his family. We said that following the flood, God gave mankind a sign of the everlasting covenant to never flood the earth again with water. That's the rainbow. We talked about that last Sunday. And in the end, what we did is we summarized everything that we studied last time with this statement. We we want to leave encouraged by this reality that we serve the sovereign one who still reigns, who still remembers, and who is still keeping every word of every promise that he has ever made. Our God is faithful to his word. And we can draw great encouragement and essential confidence from that truth. And we covered all of this ground last time. That's that's what we went through last week. And there was one key point in the passage, one of the things we surveyed, that I told you last time we weren't going to take any time last week because my intent was to come back this week and spend our time on it. Friends, I, I, I think that all of us would agree that we live in a day when violence is on the rise. Sadly, war continues to rage. Military coups seem commonplace. Murder rates are up. Muggings and robberies and rapes and assaults and drive-bys are on the rise. In recent days, political violence is increasingly normal. Human trafficking is a scourge on our land. 
And friends, hear me. Abortion is now considered a form of contraception. Truth be told, there is rarely a day that passes when we do not hear report of some horrific act or atrocity being committed somewhere in the world that demonstrates plainly the incessant and the ongoing devaluation of human life that is taking place all around us. In light of this, I think we have to ask ourselves a question. Friends, how how is a Christian to think about and respond to violence committed against fellow human beings? How are we to think about this? How are we to respond to it? Friends, this is true with any fundamental question. We have to go to the Scriptures to find answers, to find instruction concerning such a dilemma in our thinking. How how do we handle it? Well, what does God say? That's our question. And I believe that, I, and, and I would argue clearly, that the foundation for how we are to respond to God's people, how we're to think about and respond to this question of violence against our fellow man or woman is rooted in two short verses that were found right in the middle of our text last week. It's just two verses I want to look at with you this morning. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Here's what those verses say. God said to Noah and his sons as he's giving the covenant to them, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, friends, even a cursory reading of this passage makes at least a couple of things very clear to us, I think. First of all, I would say this, that God Himself is incredibly concerned with the sanctity of human life. And secondly, as we read that passage, I think it's very clear that as the sovereign over life and over His people, God intends for us to be similarly concerned about the sanctity of human life. And this then is why I say that what the Scriptures teach about violence and human life is rooted, I believe, right in this vitally important passage of Scripture. How are we to think about this? And how are we to respond to this? There's two enormous, far-reaching truths that are found in this short text, and we will not have time. You'll notice this is not how I normally like to do it. We have the Lord's Supper this morning, but we're just going to scratch the surface of this this morning. But I want you to see this as a scratching of the surface. There is so much in God's Word that talks to these things. Two big ideas in our text this morning I want us to see. First of all, I want you to notice the reckoning. And secondly, I want you to see the reason. They're both right here. Okay? So let's look first of all at the reckoning. That's what he calls for. That's what God says is going to be required. Brothers and sisters, it's important to remember the fact that God's words are not communicated in a vacuum. They never have been. In fact, every every passage that contains a corrective or a command also provides a context for that corrective or command. There's a context for the things that we read. 
And we cannot afford to forget the fact that God had just judged the world for the wickedness of man. The flood has just happened. And God is speaking immediately after Noah and his children and his family come off the ark. And he's speaking to them on the, right after the flood of judgment on man. And I want you to understand, friends, that it was not just any wickedness that God condemned on the earth. It was all wickedness, but he actually addresses specific wickedness. You see, while God certainly was troubled by the fact that, that mankind's hearts were given over to their wickedness, he actually names some things in the previous passage. We, we've looked at this passage several times, but I want you to notice it with me again. Genesis chapter 6, right on the front side of the flood, verses 5 through 7. We've seen these verses before. What does it say? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. You look at that text and you read of the wickedness of man great in the earth and how it's just spreading out across the planet and how every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is wicked. And what we hear there is all kinds of wickedness troubled God, and they did. But you have to keep reading the text because when God restates why he's going to judge the earth in this same chapter, just a few verses later, he names a specific sin. And in verse 13 of that passage, it says this, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Okay, God, why have you determined to make an end of all flesh? Next phrase. For the earth is filled with violence through them. They are shedding innocent blood. And I cannot abide it. I will not abide it. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. My friends, if the shedding of innocent blood so moved the heart of God, should it not move ours? Should it not trouble us? It's worth noting here that of all the sins that were likely being committed on the earth in that day, and there were many, God states plainly that He was going to destroy them for their violence. Following the flood, what is fascinating, one of the first things God addressed with Noah is right here in our text. And what does He address? He addresses the shedding of blood. As He gives the covenant, He brings the subject up again. And I want you to notice the language of our text, because in verse 5 of chapter 9, he tells us this. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And don't miss the repetition for emphasis. Verse 5, he says it three times, actually. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Three times in one verse, he says, I am going to require this. I, I, I don't just let it slide. I'm not keeping track. It's not that I'm not keeping track. I am keeping track of this. And he defines the reckoning this six. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That's the reckoning. Now let that sink in for a moment. 
According to our text, these two verses we are studying, friends, God Himself is the ultimate sovereign of life and death. Verse 5, He says, I will require. This is language of sovereignty. I am in charge. I will require this. As the sovereign, He will not permit an innocent life to be taken without consequence. Rather, he tells us here that he will require a reckoning for all innocent blood that is shed on the earth. And friends, we have to understand that he has ordained that the consequence for taking life is for the one who does so to forfeit his own. You shed blood, your blood will be shed. Yes, that is as sobering as it sounds. In verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Verse 5, this I will require from beasts and from man. I find it fascinating the rise in recent days of the protection of animals over the protection of human life. Dogs in a neighborhood attack a child and kill him and what do we do? Save the dogs! God has already addressed this, friends. He's addressed it. If beasts kill man, you kill the beasts. If man kills man, you kill the man. These are God's words, not our imaginings. Throughout history and throughout Scripture, there have been a variety of ways in which God intended for this to be applied and governed and fulfilled by God's people and the governments that were over them. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 19, we see how in the Old Testament, prior to the full establishment of government, God had laid out a plan for this. In fact, He gave cities in which people could hide, but if they were guilty of murder, they were to be turned over and their blood was to be taken. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 19, we read it this way, but if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. You don't protect murderers. This is God's word. Just take careful note. This was not, this was not vigilantism. This, this was not a, a practice to be done in haste. This was not a practice to be done without accountability. It was not simply people taking the law into their own hands, so to speak. No, this was God's intended way of meeting out the reckoning that he requires. This was a means by which God's intention that killers be killed could be carried out by His people in an orderly way. We don't have time to chase it all this morning, but we could look to the, the law in which there are other things added in which God's people were to kill those who perform certain sinful acts and sinful deeds, including murder. And we hear that and we say, okay, well, I'll just be the avenger then. Somehow now our mind runs to, well, yeah, I'll take this into my hands. But we have to understand that later in the New Testament, God actually tells his people that he has now invested this weighty responsibility into, of all hands, the government. And in Romans 13, we read this familiar language. Many of us know this well. Let every person, every person, be subject to the governing of For there is no authority except from God. And those that, exist, exi uh, those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do good. You'll receive his approval. 
For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, the ruler, does not bear, look at the next word, the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Friends, let's be honest, swords are not used for spanking. They're used for execution. And he tells us in this text that God has given the sword to the government to serve him as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I hear the echo of Genesis 9, verse 6, in those words. And in light of all this, I think it should not surprise us then to read the instruction to the individual Christian found in the previous chapter to this one. This is Romans 13. In Romans 12, we read these, this, this warning to us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He will set wrongs right. That is not up to you, nor is it up to me. Clearly, our God is not freeing us to go around avenging things ourselves, but as you might imagine, all that we've just said and so much more in Scripture is actually, has astounding implications for our lives and for the way, as I said, that we think about and that we respond to violence committed against fellow human beings. For instance, very quickly, some application. I want you to think about this. Scripture is clear that murder in all its forms is wrong. And not just murder, Jesus says your heart of anger is equivalent to murder in God's sight. This should instruct us. You know the language of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 says it plainly. You shall not, some translations say kill, it's actually in context and and as we understand the, the use of the word, it means to murder. You will not commit murder. This is the shedding of innocent blood. Now, friends, as much as I would love to chase every one of these thoughts, again, we don't have time this morning, I will simply say this, we have to acknowledge that this does not forbid just and righteous warfare. There's a whole dispute and debate and an argument, is there even such thing as a just war? I get that, there's a debate and we can have it another time. I simply want to say to you, if you read your New Testament and centurions are converted to Christ, Jesus doesn't look at them next and say, now leave the army. He says, be a good soldier. Even in the Old Testament, we find in the book of Ecclesiastes words like this, there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. I would argue that the scripture here is not forbidding just or righteous warfare. I would also say, as we noted a moment ago, that it doesn't forbid capital punishment. He put the sword in the government's hands. For us to oppose it as Christians, I think, would be wrong based upon the text of scripture. Though I know there's a debate that rages about that as well. If we had time to chase it, which we don't this morning, I believe we could demonstrate very convincingly that it does not forbid self-defense. Self-defense. But friends, we could and should argue vehemently and unashamedly that this prohibition does include abortion. Abortion is actually the premeditated and willful murder of an unborn child. I don't say that lightly. 
If statistics are true, it's very possible that there are numerous women in this room who may be affected by this somewhere in their past. So I don't say this lightly. There is mercy and there is forgiveness for all sins repented of. But we still say what God says. This is forbidden by God. Hear me, friends, the Bible is clear. An unborn child is still a person who is formed and known and loved by God. I love the language. My my favorite passage in the Bible, Psalm 139, where we hear the psalmist say, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. My friends, hear me. This language is as beautiful as it is astounding God intimately and intricately is forming that little one in the womb. And that little one is a person known by God, made and loved by Him. We don't get to discard people. Even those we have not yet met. More than this, the law of God actually called for capital punishment in the case of killing a child within the womb or causing a child to be born prematurely that dies. In Exodus chapter 21, God is instructing His people as just beginning to give His law there at the Mount of Sinai. We read there, whoever strikes, verse 12, a man so that he dies shall be put to death. There's murder. He forbids it. Same passage. A few verses later, we read, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose and he shall pay as the judges determine. What's the picture? There's a man and there's a neighbor or another man and they're fighting and his wife is pregnant and the wife steps in between them to try to stop the fight. And the one fighting with her husband hits her and causes a premature birth. And the baby's fine. The one who caused the premature birth still pays fines for that. But what if the baby's not okay? If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If you so move to cause the death of a baby, God called his people, you forfeit your life. My friends, the implications of this are far-reaching and weighty. 
We don't have time to chase all of the implications that are attached to what the Bible says about this. But, but for now, can we simply say it this way? That the Bible prohibits doing violence to or committing murder against another human being, even the unborn. Before we move on, I do want to make one note of one other thing. As our family was coming back from the wedding yesterday, we drove past a billboard in South Carolina, near the North Carolina border, and it said this, abortion is legal in North Carolina. Friends, do you know what this is? This is a tourism ad. There are people right here where we live who are paying for advertisements in another state, inviting people to travel to North Carolina with promises like this. Come to our state. We will help you murder your baby. Brethren, these things ought not so to be. But it is the current state of affairs right here where we live. Because according to our text, our hearts should respond to these things. Our God's heart does. You see, this is how we're to think about and respond to violence against our fellow man. We're we're to remember that our God is the sovereign over life and over death. We're to acknowledge that He requires a reckoning for all innocent blood that is shed by man or by beast. We are to submit ourselves to those God has given as avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. And we are to love life. And to do all within our limited and meager power to protect it. My friends, this should affect the way we live. The way we watch over our families. The way we vote. The way we work. The implications of this is great. It's clear that our God intends for us to revere Him and to highly esteem human life that He creates and sustains. But we need to ask another question. Why? Why do we think about and respond to these realities like this? Why do our hearts move as they do along with our gods? What is the reason for it that He gives? Well, our text actually answers it. I told you that we have here the reckoning. But secondly and briefly, I want you to consider the reason. Or the reasoning we find here. Look back at our two verses one more time. Verses 5 and 6. What do we read? And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning from the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. God did something when He made us that was different from how He made everything else. 
Friends, we see it here plainly. God told us the reason. He made us in his image. You see, it's absolutely vital for us to remember the fact that there is something very, very different between humankind and the animals that God made on the sixth day. There is a difference, an important difference. Stated simply, mankind, described as both and only male and female, by the way, was made in the image of God. We saw that in chapter 1. We looked at it in verses 26 and 27. What does it say there? Then God said, let us make men in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God did it. He made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment, friends. I want you to pay close attention to what we're seeing here. This imago Dei, this image of God as it's known among scholars, is vital and foundational to thinking rightly, to responding rightly to the sanctity of human life. If we're going to see the appropriate treatment of men and women around us, then we better believe the right things about them. See, here's the problem. Some of us don't even look at people as though they're human. They're just speed bumps between me and the counter at Walmart. They're just roadblocks between me and getting to work on time. We don't see our neighbors as being made in the image of God. We just see that their leaves are on my lawn. And if we don't see people as God made them, then we will not think rightly or respond rightly when violence is on the rise. Brothers and sisters, the implications of this principle affect everything that we mentioned in the introduction and so much more. War. Government takeovers, murder, rape, muggings, robberies, assaults, drive-bys, violence, political or otherwise, human trafficking, pornography, abortion, and any other misuse or abuse of mankind that might be coming to your mind right now or may come to your mind later. Those misuses and abuses of people, God forbids. So often we go through life and we shrug, well, that's just the day we live in. It's just the cost of being an American anymore. No, my friends. God's people think differently. God's people are anchored to something that doesn't change. Even when political winds blow another direction. See, I believe that we have to grab hold of the grounding and guiding principles of the image of God and refuse to let go of them. Our God's design is that this truth, these truths, would truly serve as the foundation, the teacher, the guardian of us as we navigate the the shifting morals of our days. They don't change. The truths of God's word don't change. Everything else may. As we go to the table, I want to just for a moment, ask you to consider this thought. What we celebrate this morning as we come to this table, what we celebrate this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper is actually the shedding of precious blood. 
You see, in light of our text for today, we have to acknowledge the fact that in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see three realities at once come together. What are they? Christ Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice. He was murdered by the hands of wicked men. And He was crushed by the will of His Holy Father in one event. Isn't it ironic in light of all that we've considered this morning that the foundation and centerpiece, that which we gather this morning to celebrate, is the bloody slaughter of the Son of God. Because my friends, the Bible is absolutely clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is our hope. The same writer who penned that in chapter 9 went on in chapter 10 to say it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My friends, this is our hope, and this is what we celebrate and give thanks for at this table this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your truth. We are so prone to that which sways the thoughts. So many live with their finger in the air waiting to see where the breeze will blow, but yet your people are called to live anchored to truth, unchanging truth. I pray this morning as we turn to this table, you would instruct us and you would guide us in our praise of you and our living for you. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.